The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not reflect that of WVFS Tallahassee. From the highest point on Florida State's campus and the hottest room in Seminole sports, this is Tomahawk Talk. We are live on 89.7 FM here in Tallahassee and streaming online at wvfs.fsu.edu. If you want to call into the show, feel free to dial us up at 850-644-3871. And if you happen to miss this week's show or any other future show, you can go back and listen to us on the Tomahawk Talk podcast, streaming anywhere you listen to your podcasts. I am Brett Rutherford, filling in for Luke Hazen, who is somewhere out in California enjoying some In-N-Out Burger right now. I'm, I'm happy to be back in this chair. We've got a great show tonight, as there is lots to talk about in the world of sports. Giannis Antetokounmpo led the Milwaukee Bucks to an NBA championship, and the Tokyo Olympics are in full swing. But first off, got to introduce my good friend, WCTV sports director and former host of Tomahawk Talk, Ryan Kelly. Ryan, when was the last time you were in this studio doing a live radio show? Brett, it's been uh, the last time I did Tomahawk Talk. Period. I know it was a, uh, it was a. Uh, you were doing it remotely oh, as that's a podcast right. yeah. for a bit. We revisited what was it the twenty sixteen the twenty sixteen football season. A, a confusing time in Florida State athletics, <laughs> but yeah, actually in Diffenbaugh, room four twenty. Gosh, I, at, if at my memory serves me correctly, months. yeah, I think we were discussing the recruitment of Tate Rodemaker. And so we were, yeah. we were. Oh my gosh, yes. So it's it's been a while. A lot, a lot has happened. A lot's since changed. <laughs> um, but no, glad to have you back. Uh, and as always, our producer Sebastian Adriano also in studio today. Sebastian, we're going to do a whole podcast on this at a later date. Trust me. But I just got to let you know right now, live on air, that I'm starting to become a Formula One guy. I noticed you talking about it on your Twitter feed during the British Grand Prix. That's yeah. the real whole reason we talked about it last week. I don't know if you got a chance to tune into the show. We talked a little bit about yeah. that that first lap specifically and how like loaded the conversation is for that specific uh, for for that event. It was really exciting to see. I was like, oh my gosh, I might actually get away with some Formula One talk on air. Eventually, and I'm getting the double dip, so I'm really excited. I, I want to do a podcast with you as soon as I learn more. I'm watching Drive to Survive on Netflix. Uh, I rearranged my living room this past week, and as soon as my new, uh, longer Ethernet cable comes in, I'll be bu- uh, downloading the Formula One video game on my PlayStation. But oh, okay. we can talk about that at a later date for sure. We've also got Scott Clemens on the ones and twos back in the prod booth. I think he'll be appearing later on in the show when we talk college football. A lot of news in the world of college mm-hmm. football, but really, I, I hadn't. I hadn't... <laughs> As always, it revolves around the SEC, so you know. we'll get to it. It just means uh, more. Well, we'll get get tonight's show started talking NBA Finals. The Milwaukee Bucks taking down the Phoenix Suns in six games. Giannis Antetokounmpo, 50 points in that series clincher. He wins Finals MVP. And in a rare, I don't want to say rare, because I don't think it's as rare as many people think, but a championship in the NBA won with mostly homegrown talent, the leading to Giannis and Chris Middleton, how cool is that to see happen in the NBA when every year it's like the talk about the offseason and free agency and trades and all this? How cool is it to see Milwaukee win it? It's awesome, and this is the best that it's been to see a team win a title since Golden State won that first one before yeah. before KD and the Shark got jumped and all that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- this has been, for me, a... I guess you could call me a casual guy for the NBA because it's impossible to be a diehard when you're watching the Orlando Magic for the better part of <laughs> the last decade and a half. But, you know, this has been a ton of fun to watch. This has been so thrilling to see Phoenix and Milwaukee, not the Lakers, not the Warriors, not the Heat, not the Celtics, Milwaukee and stinking Phoenix play for these sinking NBA Finals. It's been so much fun to watch. And, and listen, I, I'm heartbroken for uh, Chris Paul. 
I, I, yeah. I did want Chris Paul to get his ring. But but overall, you know, just to see those two games, to see how great Phoenix looked in those first two, and then Giannis just basically saying, we're not going to be denied, rattle off four straight, uh, get some good performances from the supporting cast, um, see Budenholzer smile for once. <laughs> you know, it, it was a fun finals, and it was a different finals. And I think it's because I'm not a LeBron hater. I'm the only guy I can legitimately say in the NBA that I just have a distaste for is Kevin Durant. But, you know, as as someone who doesn't hate LeBron, as someone who sometimes doesn't like his attitude on the floor, but obviously he's a great dude, philanthropic dude, and one of the best to ever do it. I mean, there's there's no question about that. But I get so sick of going to the NBA Finals when LeBron's in it every year, and every game, the 24-hour nonstop media cycle of the NBA is always, what does this game mean to the LeBron <laughs> legacy? What does this game mean? Is this the game where he cements it? And it's just like... You know, sometimes it can just be a finals game. He's played in like 70 of them. So, you know, this can just be one of them. That, that's it. It can just be a game. And so for all of that, you know, narrative of legacy and how we talk about this 20 years ago pushed out the window, it was just fun to sit back and watch competitive basketball with two teams that play excellent basketball together. Uh, I, I've always, like, I, I've never been in the camp of I get, you know, tired of seeing the, it was the Warriors and the Cavs that we saw, it felt like year after year after year. Those were the two best teams. They deserve to be in the finals Absolutely. every year. But this this finals, this series, it was refreshing. And Sebastian, I think, like, as a basketball fan, it was, it was nice to sit back and, and watch Giannis, who I think a lot of people thought was going to be out for the rest of the playoffs. We I mean, came down with that la- nasty leg injury. It, to see him, though, put together several legendary performances, including that 50, 50 point game in game six. I mean, that was, it just felt like I was watching something truly historic. The big man is dead. Long live the big man. <laughs> yeah. um, for, for the past decade, we've seen the rise of small ball and just absolutely dominate this league. And for a big man to just completely walk all over that is. Uh, it's exciting. I wouldn't say it's refreshing because Phoenix play phenomenal basketball. Um, but there is something to be said about Giannis's. I hate that we just went on a little tirade about legacy, but in terms of you know a a project coming to its encapsulation, um, to its to its apex, Giannis decides to stay in Milwaukee, decides to build something in Milwaukee from the jump. Does not uh, you know do the whole pomp and circumstance, the theater of, oh, I really want to be here, I enjoy it here, but I have some fundamental disagreements with the front office. I don't like the front office. The fans are great, but I can't be here anymore. I have to go find somewhere else where I can be. Oh, hey, this big market right here. Um, I don't want to say Brooklyn because I, I don't have that fundamental resentment to, to Katie. I just can't reciprocate it. His game is too good for me to oh, not enjoy it. Um, He's just a petulant child. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't I, I can't disagree with him but uh, or with you. But ultimately it's you know the it's the one in a million uh story where the small market actually gets away with mm-hmm. it. And that is so fundamentally that's a that's like, you know, uh a charge of like a, a charge of a defibrillator on the league for me personally. Because it means that, you know, the, the super team formula that we've seen over the past seven years actually no, over the past 11 years at this point is no like it's not gospel anymore and there is there is no infallibility anymore there that's so refreshing finally like you don't have to see yes one of four teams uh split 10 titles that is that that's that's nice i i'll, I'll take that and it doesn't take like a 
um, all-time performance. Because we, we, we talked about this at the beginning of the playoffs, um, Hazen and I, um, on the show. And it was like, what are the, the, the lone like standout stories, for, like the one championship title that w- kind of stood out from the rest in the 2010s was was the uh, the Mavericks one right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Where it's uh, like an all legitimately an all-time performance from Nowitzki that stops, you know, um, another title going to the Heat. But um, I digress. I'm just happy it's someone else. I think that's the common theme here. Yeah. I'm just happy it's someone else. I, I always go back to the 18-19 season where it was a very entertaining season. The Toronto Raptors end up uh, beating the Warriors in five games, the, a very you know injured Warriors team. But th- all of the storylines from that NBA season were not about that season. It was about where was Kawhi going to end up after that year with the Raptors? Who was LeBron going to get to join him in L.A.? All the storylines were about all these moving pieces. Then last year, everything kind of started to settle in. We had Kawhi and Paul George go to the Clippers. We had Anthony Davis go to the Lakers. The Nets built their team, even though KD was a year away from being healthy. Golden State needed to wait for Clay. Things were starting to settle, though. Then COVID threw a wrench into everything. This year, I think we really start, started to see, when you get a finals between Phoenix and Milwaukee, with all these pieces finally setting in place, it doesn't level the playing field, but it allows other teams a seat at the table where the super team models definitely changed from the you know the days of the Boston Celtics and the Miami Heat. The Nets are probably the closest thing to that. But you're seeing the Lakers with a big two rather than a big three. The Clippers went the same route and trying to build deeper, stronger teams. I think it's made a really – it's been a net positive for the NBA. This year, though, you dealt with a lot of injuries in the uh-huh. postseason. And – even Milwaukee dealt with a lot of stuff. Phoenix dealt with a lot of stuff. It didn't cheapen the experience of the playoffs because I still I thought it was a very enjoyable playoffs. It'll be interesting to see what happens next year because for some of these players, not all of them, we're going to talk about that in a second, they're going to get a real off season. They're going to get some time to rest. We've seen it across multiple sports, mainly... Because they're certainly not playing for Team USA. <laughs> <laughs> mainly pro basketball and pro soccer. These truncated off seasons, these, you know, a lot of these leagues came back and finished the 1920 seasons that were uh, cut short, and then rolled that right into a new season. I'm really excited for next year's NBA, because for the most part, there's going to be some probably a big trade, some big free agent signings this offseason. The big pieces are feel like they're settled in, and it, it's a wide-open league for next year. The Lakers are going to be back. The Clippers are going to be there. Give the Nets a full season together. I think they'll probably be the favorites. And Milwaukee. Milwaukee's right there back with Giannis. He's staying in Milwaukee. And he could have left, like Sebastian said. He could have easily left. He could have went to Miami. He could have went to really wherever he wanted, as we've seen other players kind of use that leverage in today's NBA. But ultimately, I think basketball in the league right now is, is really in a good place. And I think that that more than anything is what you want. It's it's not necessarily the idea of, grr, I hate super teams. I mean, super teams have been around forever. The Showtime Lakers were a super team. Let's Let's <laughs> not kid ourselves here. I think it's just the idea that, People can now enjoy again that basketball, the NBA season, is not a foregone conclusion. It is not 82 games that feel worthless because it's going to be Cavs-Warriors again, because it's going to be Lakers and whoever, because it's going to be Heat and Spurs. Like, it, it is no longer that. It is a wide-open playoff. All these series were interesting, and they had unique storylines. It wasn't all right, well, you know, who's going to be the sacrificial lamb for these four games or these five games? It never felt like that. There was intrigue throughout the whole thing. I mean, I, I even the Atlanta Hawks run to the Crayon. semifinals is an absolute joy to watch because who thought the Atlanta Hawks were going to do that? And not Very only that, early. take game one. Like, it's just been so much fun to see new faces, 
to see new places. And it's such a great reward for the fans because we talk about folks who follow the league as a whole. Yeah, it's great for them because this is a very player and not team-driven league. But if I'm a fan of the Memphis Grizzlies, and I have been for 20 years, what merit is there to me to be a Grizzlies fan? What merit is there for me to be a Magic fan? What merit is there for me to be a Hornets fan? Well, guess what? You've now got your answer because you too can win this. Granted, you're going to need to draft a freak to do it, but good thing there's a lot of freaks in the NBA draft. But but I hated like the, I think the state of the NBA even a couple of years ago was you had two te- two types of teams, teams that felt they had a chance to win a championship that year, which the group was very small, and then everyone else who was trying to rebuild. Yeah, everybody's playing for 30th place. And it's and it, that that's not how you make a healthy league. In the NBA, I'm not here to question that the NBA is not one of the healthiest and fastest growing leagues in North American sports. But I, as a fan, as a casual fan, like you said, that likes to watch the league that wasn't the best viewing experience, now I think you've got teams, those mid-range teams, you look at Atlanta, you look at what Miami did last year, you look at the New York Knicks. I even like to say, look at the Charlotte Hornets. I know their season didn't go great, but that's a team that wasn't contending for a championship and still went out and tried to improve by signing Gordon Hayward. Now we can talk about whether or not that was a good contract or not, but it was a team that didn't really have a real path to a championship. It wasn't a good contract. It wasn't a bad contract. It was a Mitch Kupchak contract. <laughs> yes, that for sure. But they were trying to get better. They were trying to get make it into that playoffs. You look at the Orlando Magic, who are getting the eighth seed like every year, and they finally said this year, well, this is pointless. Let's trade everyone and try to rebuild. And you're always going to have rebuilding teams in any you know major sports league. But to have more seats at the table for teams to not only get into the playoffs, but with a chance to advance, I think the best example of that this year, the Atlanta Hawks, Trey Young, you know, really turned into a star, but turned into a heel, a heel that the NBA, and I think any sport, you know, could always use a great heel. And watching Trey Young kind of be born into that is is was was awesome to watch. I do want to talk about Miami or Milwaukee's path rather. They take out the Heat in four, the Heat who beat them in five last year. Then you take it down the super team, Brooklyn Nets, and what was probably the best series of the playoffs goes seven games. That last one goes into overtime. Great performances from Kevin Durant. Um, and then they beat the Hawks, like I said, with that emerging superstar, Trey Young. And then you beat the Phoenix Suns, who I think many thought would have would have beaten Milwaukee, especially with a banged-up Giannis. You go down two games to none, you win four straight. A legendary, like, trip to an NBA championship. It's a, it's a very strong, like, it, it's not like uh, as as some fans would be dismissive about it, like a Mickey Mouse-type trophy where it's like, oh, well, uh, these guys didn't have this guy, or this team was was lacking this fundamental piece. No, this was a very, like, although injuries plagued everybody, I'd say almost equally, um, it was a very complete statement on, yes, we are absolutely the best team in the league. Yeah, and on top of that, yeah, nothing came easy. And... In addition to that, they spit in the face of the narrative every single time. The old, tired narrative that we've heard about the Milwaukee Bucks for the last couple Well, Budenholzer's a dead man walking. Well, they just can't get it done. They don't have pieces other than Giannis. You know, they need this, that, the other. And they said no every single time. And every single time that narrative looked like it was going to get written when they were down to the Hawks early, when they, you know, go seven against the Nets, when they're down to nothing. Every single time that old narrative found a way to creep back up, it was immediately slammed shut by a team that looked oh so determined. And you saw that especially through, especially from about game four on. Yeah. That 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 fourth game where they just say, yeah, this ain't happening out on our floor, is as impressive an NBA Finals win as you'll see in a very long time. 
how good were they on their I want to bring up the home court um, piece. I mean, you can talk about how packed out Deer District was for Game 6, but um, how good were they on their home court? It felt like every time you would tune in to a, a game that took place in Milwaukee, it was all but a formality where the, you had basically no shot in their building. Uh, even when Phoenix was blazing through, um, you know, out out of the valley and into um, Milwaukee, it felt like they had no chance coming in. And going out, they absolutely manhandled them. Yeah, their only home loss in the playoffs was that game one against Atlanta where they lost by three a night that Atlanta shot wow. incredibly well. And they won every other game played in that arena uh, throughout this playoffs. It, it was incredible, I think. I think the question is now, before we we, we move on, uh, w- would you guys say, after what we saw Milwaukee do, that they are the favorites going into next season? No. Yeah, I'd agree with no, that. No, um, that's okay. Like, um, But I wouldn't say this is also like a flash-in-the-pan type like playoff scenario where it's just one dude going nuclear and willing his team over the finish line either. Um, this is still going to be a very clear competitor. I think you could call them Eastern Conference favorites. Maybe like uh, the favorites to win the Eastern Conference Finals. But then again, Brooklyn. you know, Brooklyn's still there, right? Brooklyn, I mean, what if Miami gets its act back together? What if they prove the bubble's not a fluke? I mean, the, the, the fact that we can actually sit here and talk about options in the NBA in and of itself it's is exciting. thrilling. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just fun to talk about because we haven't done this in such a long time. I mean, it'll be interesting to see this offseason. I haven't really looked at the free agents. We'll, we'll talk about that probably more on this show as the summer progresses. But how this championship team looks to improve. Because if they rest on their laurels, like we say, the Brooklyn Nets are going to be there. Miami Heat uh, has been a strong competitor in the Eastern Conference. You look out west, uh, both L.A. teams are, are looking extremely strong. And Phoenix will be back again, too. They seem to be a really well-built NBA team. Uh, but it's going to be fun as we enter the NBA offseason. But it's not the offseason for some of these players. We see Drew Holiday, Chris Middleton, Devin Booker just played a grueling six-game NBA Finals, three series played before that. They went straight to Tokyo, and they are playing for Team USA. Speaking of grueling. In the, in the Olympic Games, and I think that's probably the bigger story in basketball today. It's been a week since like the, since Milwaukee won that series, but you know that's the problem of only doing this show once a week. Uh, but since then, Team USA has played their first game at the uh, Olympic Games, where they lose to France. And uh, a lot of overreactions. Um, i I, I, I got to preface this by saying, okay, number one. The United States should not have lost this game. No. They're a more talented team. They have a stronger coaching staff. Uh, we can talk about the rules or whatever. They should not have lost this game. But let's not pretend that this France team was a cakewalk. Let's not pretend that the U.S. is that much more dominant than all these other countries, including you know Slovenia. You look at uh, Luka Doncic. Uh, this is not going to be an easy gold for the U.S. as we see in Game 1. Uh, but what, what were your guys' thoughts uh, at the start of this tournament? Um the U.S. is it, it's it's honestly really it's it's embarrassing every time uh, the U.S. loses on the international stage. The expectation is a gold medal every single uh, outing at the Olympics since 1992. Um, maybe that expectation is getting to um, the organization as we get um, every four years. Everybody's a whole lot better, and uh, the United States is kind of just you know still the gold standard, but everybody's getting to that gold standard. So. It's just there. A billion dollars in NBA contracts. So that's what I want to get at. This is a lot. Like, each one of these players is an NBA all-star, essentially. All but. Um, sure, there's uh, additional components, but the but the crux of the team is our uh, superstars. And they can't play together. Like, the la- I don't know if you guys lost saw the last three minutes of this game. 
I wanted to. Well, um, the United States has a seven point lead going into the last. I wanted to. I wanted to like gut myself because it was just it was the most frustrating form of basketball, and it was almost like an encapsulation of like the disconnect between NBA basketball and basketball as it's played through the rest of the world. Where um, and I'm not just talking about the arc. Like the arc is like whatever. Congrats, like a two point shot in the U.S. where we haven't really uh, we've avoided like the plague just because that's how the league is now played. It's painting threes all the way through. Even even today, uh, as a um, as I said earlier, like a big man won the championship. It's even still like the threes still rule this league, and you can't you can't sink one in four minutes. Like come on, man. It's the flopping like um the the FIBA rule set. Uh, has a fundamental disjoint with the NBA rule set, and I think that really hurt them in this game. That's what I think really affected the team. And not being able to adapt to that, that's what, for me, uh, really did it in for the U.S. Well, you know, I mean, Greg Popovich has paid a whole lot of money to make sure that that rule set adapts yeah. and to make sure that that roster gels. And this is coming from someone who's a big Pop fan. And I don't put everything at Pop's feet, but I, I do want to go back to back when they're training in Vegas. You lose to Nigeria, you lose to Australia, Pop loses it with a reporter and talks about how much better the world is and how the dream team's never going to happen again. And the thing is, especially with this roster, even though, like you said, it's still over a billion dollars in NBA contracts, Sebastian, uh, you know, this is not the LeBron KD roster. It's not. It's not the, the absolute freaks and superstars of the United States. But it's still a really good roster that's still better than the rest of the world. So, yeah, Pop, no one's expecting you to beat people the way Jordan and Barkley and Leitner and all those guys did back in 92, but they are expecting you to win because you're more talented, period. End of discussion. And like you said, the last three minutes, how abysmal that you can blow a lead like that. How terrible that you go. Like, you know, rule book or no rule book, you're basketball players. <laughs> you know, you, you are supposedly the best in the world. Everybody else looks like they're playing for a gold medal. You look like you're playing in preseason in a stadium that's not your own to visit a secondary market. That, that's what you look like you're doing. You want to know Pop's record in the last 18 games? It's not good. It's like 11-7. and seven. Yeah, it ain't great. Well, I mean, that's about what the Spurs are these days, so you know. Oof. Ooh, okay, if I'm going to come to the uh, defense of the United States, and in all fairness, I didn't watch the second half of this game. I watched the first half when you're they better seemed to for be it. playing yeah. you know, okay basketball. Good man. But if there was any Olympics where a U.S. team that's comprised completely of of NBA players, and all these other teams have great NBA players on them too, but not from the you know the whole roster. Again, we talked about it when we talked about the, the this current NBA season that just ended. This has been a grueling NBA schedule. You had the bubble that rolled into a new season, and now some of these players that just p- finished an NBA Finals are now expected to play significant minutes. Drew Holiday played 28 minutes in this game uh, for their their, their country. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he, you know, he shot five for 13. Not not terrible. He scored 18 points. Leading scorer for the U.S. Um, but with that being said, this is probably the worst Olympics for the U.S. to play in, given everything that these players have gone through. It's still the Olympics. You know, you can't move the date of the Olympics. They already moved it a whole year. Uh, they were going to be played, and you want to send uh, some of your best players. And you look at Kevin Durant, Damian Lillard, uh, Jason Tatum, Chris Middleton, Devin Booker. These are some of the best players in the world right now, but you're still missing Anthony Davis, LeBron James, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Steph Curry, the other really great players in the United States. Again, not an excuse. But this is not going to be a cakewalk for the United States, as was shown in this first game. Are, I don't know. Are, is after game after this first game, like 
gold medal, is that still the expectation for, for the United States? Absolutely. They're, they're, if there's a team that that should get it together, it's it's the U.S. Somehow. There's too much talent that just is, uh, you know, wasted there if they're not. Uh, that being said, it's not going to be remotely easy because on top of everybody being better, you have now have the mentality. There's blood in the water. You can be the team. You can be – who was it? Was it Argentina or Spain in 04? Argentina, um, maybe. I don't know. I was four yeah. years old. Um, <laughs> wow. You can be, you can be Argentina wow, from 2004. that dated me. Yeah. <laughs> I knew it would. Uh, yeah. But, I mean, I, does anyone know the exact format? Of this of this tournament, I believe they have three groups. Group play and then elementary. <laughs> Everything is made up, and the points don't matter. Group stage, right? They get three yeah, games. Uh, I think so, and then you um, play a, a single elimination. I believe it's similar yeah. to the Euros, where third place teams and groups can advance. Which is, which is crazy comparative to. I was looking up the softball rules the other day. They just play a straight round robin. They're like, all right, best records playing for gold. Isn't it gold medal tonight for softball? I think so. I've been so out of it doing all this ACC kickoff stuff that, like, the Olympics, I'll, I'll be honest with you, the most Olympics I've watched outside of basketball is skateboarding. Well, that's been the talk. It doesn't, it doesn't help that the games are at, like, 2 a.m. No, it doesn't. Let, let's talk about that right now. Let's, let's talk about the rest of the Olympic games. So the last time we had an Eastern Hemisphere Olympics was 2008, right? Yeah. Um, no, Pyong, well, uh, unless you're talking about summer, summer, summer games. games. Summer games. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. You're going to be the Olympic stickler, I see. Uh, none of us had Twitter. None of us had Facebook. I didn't even have a cell phone. I believe I... Ha- no, I got a Twitter in 09. Okay, never mind. So, Continue. And the idea of like linear TV was so much more straightforward. And I was like also like eight years old, so what did I know? But like, consuming the Olympics on NBC was a lot more easy. I think now you look at games... You know, If you want to watch stuff live, it's going to be after prime time or very early in the morning. Uh, they're showing a lot of stuff live to tape, or recording a lot of stuff live to tape, and showing it in prime time and some of those other better TV slots. But all the results are out there. You yeah. Know? If you're just watching NBC, a lot of the stuff you're watching, the big events, are not live. You could have found out the results. Maybe you could have streamed them somewhere else. You can't post any videos on Twitter. The IOC will crack down on that immediately. Um, but it's I can't it's, even show video. It's yeah, exactly. I, I, I have to show AP photos on the air. It's incredibly because hard I, because I don't work for an NBC affiliate. And even then, NBC affiliates get like a hilarious like they get like thirty seconds a day. It's hard to don't watch quote the Olympics, me on that, but it's close to that. It's it, it's it, insane because in in Canada that's on free to air broadcasting. That's well, on the CBC. It, it, it is in the U.S. too. It's still a lot. They still still show the big events on NBC proper, uh, but like USA Basketball yesterday morning played on Peacock, a streaming service. And I know they reran that game later in the day on NBC in a better TV time slot. But what's stopping them from showing? The USA, the USA men's basketball team at 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And here's the thing. Speaking at this from a television perspective, you know, I, I understand, you know, paid programming and affiliates trying to make their money back. I mean, how, how many times do you see an There's a lot of contracts involved here. An infomercial on the weekend because, yeah, the, the, that keeps local affiliates fed. That, that keeps people like me paid. <laughs> like, I, I get, yeah, who cares about that? Yeah, you know, who cares? <laughs> who needs to eat? Um, uh, but, but I get all that. But also, I also know the ad revenue that these local affiliates can get from, hey, you want to sponsor the USA basketball game at, Seven in the morning, done. Take my money. You know, local car dealership, local restaurant, local wherever, real estate agency. Yeah, they're willing to fork that out. And you know, it it drives me crazy that yeah, it just feels so backwards. It feels so backwards that you know you can pull up these results anywhere and you can find them on you know Team USA's Twitter. Or you can 
stream them on Peacock, which you got to pay for, and you only have most cable. It's like the ACC network in that way. Mm-hmm. You don't really know if you have it. You probably don't. But at the end of the day, it's there, and it's going to make <laughs> you deal with it. So that being said, it's it's absurd that our media habits have changed so much, yeah. so much, and the Olympics just feel like they're parked in neutral. And it's crazy because, I mean, NBC Sports in so many ways can be the gold standard. Sunday I mean, football, Sunday Night Football League. is the gold standard. They do a phenomenal job with the Premier League. Notre Dame football is a great broadcast. And they've the, done incredible Olympics before. And they've oh, done eight and 12 and 16 were amazing. fantastic stuff. And here's the thing, and that's not to say that the coverage hasn't been good. That's not to say folks like... Uh, Mike Tirico and Maria Taylor, of course, now of NBC. Uh, that's not to say these folks haven't done a good job, but it just kind of feels like you're in a position to fail when you expect people to watch things the way they would 20 years ago. And they don't. And it's like you say, they don't. And r- ratings have plummeted, and they're trying to incorporate other sports. That's why they're intro- incorporating, like in, in Paris, whatever that is, 2024, right? I believe so. Um, yeah. They're introducing breakdancing into the Olympics. Now, breakdancing is not what I would call like my first pick for an Olympic sport. It's just um, figure skating without the skates to an extent. I, I suppose. I'm not I'm not I apologize, figure skaters <laughs> yeah. and breakdancers, and I look forward to your letters. I uh I'm I'm not trying to be dismissive, but it's like they're they're clearly in wherever it is, it's it's France, right? The Olympic Committee is in France. They're scratching their heads, it's like how do we make this accessible? Ex- except they have the answer right in front of them and they don't want to yeah. do that. Breakdancing, skateboarding, the kids of nineteen ninety eight are gonna love these next Olympic games. Oh, my God. They are like 22 years behind when you put it like that. Well, oh, my God. Well, we're going to talk more Olympics on the other side of the break, but you're listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. And we're back on Tomahawk Talk, uh, talking uh, the Tokyo Games, the Tokyo Summer Games. Yeah, it's been a weird one, I, I got to say. And let me preface this by saying I understand why it's happening. I get it. As someone who's vaccinated and a couple weeks ago contracted COVID myself, went through quarantine, now out, yada, yada, yada. Uh, it sucks watching this, these games without fans. Oh, it's killer. And Because you, you see all these other sports in all different parts of the country, even like the European Championships and the Copa America didn't have fans down in South America. Last year, when I would you know tune in and watch the German Bundesliga at 9 a.m. on ESPN+, Plus, I didn't really care. There was no fans. You were just happy to watch I something. I was taking any crumb of sports that I could get. But after seeing some of these great crowd moments that we saw in the NBA Finals, like we saw at WWE's Money in the Bank with John Cena returning. That's awesome. Going then and watching the Olympics with no fans, it sucks. And I, and I also say, the Olympics isn't known for like these like great rabid fan moments. It's it's a little bit different of a fan experience, uh, but it's still a little weird watching USA and Mexico play softball and it's just like completely dead silent. Uh, and it's I think that is also hurting you know NBC and kind of broadcasting the, these these games. Well, it, it's it's funny because you know not not to get into really more of the news of the day, but I, I think. You know, those of us here in the West, it's hard for us to wrap our brain around the idea that this is still a really big problem. Don't get me wrong. All the Delta variant stuff, all the stuff that's happening here, you know, be safe, take care of each other. uh, Because we've seen the numbers rise here back in the States. But you just kind of realize that, you know, different parts of the world are just in a completely different reality right now in terms of what's available, what vaccines look like, what, what the whole picture is. And I think this is just putting it right in front of America and Canada and everybody else's face of like, yeah, this is the world that a lot of people are still living in right now. And, 
you know, to your point, I think you nailed it on the head. You know, last year, whether it be the Bundesliga, the NBA bubble, the MLS's back tournament, whatever it was, people were just thrilled to see anything. And now we've been spoiled rotten because... For better or for worse. Yeah, for everything. Because the NBA playoffs were great. The Stanley Cup playoffs, the atmospheres were great. The NCAA baseball and softball playoffs were great. So many cool atmospheres. And now it's, you know, empty arenas. And I think the idea... I think the other thing that kills it is that the Olympics, unlike here, when let's take the NFL season, for example, they did everything in their power to make sure that if it was a stadium where fans couldn't attend, they were going to do everything they could to make sure you couldn't see those stands outside of like that establishing shot to start the game. They did everything you could in the Olympics. Yeah, no such thing. You keep looking up and you just see these people running in an empty arena. You see them swimming in an empty arena. And, you know, I don't self-plug a lot of things that we do over at the station, but I, I did want to bring this up because it was fascinating. We uh, we talked to a dude last week, him and his wife, been to every summer game since Atlanta in 96 wow. and had to cancel a week before because of because And even talking to him, it was a fascinating interview. Like you said, the Olympics aren't this rah-rah, go-team experience all the time, more than it's very much a human experience over a sporting yeah. experience. And, yeah, to not have that is really strange because that is the permanent backdrop of these games. Yeah, no, it, it, it's tough. Um, I, I think it, the Olympics are probably going to change in a lot of ways moving forward the way, with the way the, the world kind of, you know, heals from post-COVID-19. <laughs> Um, but it, it, it is, a, uh, you know, rough. So I, I give NBC, I cut them some slack. I cut anyone that's trying to put these games together, which I'm sure is a task within itself, uh, a lot of credit for what they've done. And there still is some, a lot of great moments to be seen. I've been watching the swimming, uh, saw USA win the 4x100 free, beat the French last night, which is always great to see, <laughs> dating back to 2008. A lot of great Olympics, and who knows, maybe USA basketball turns it around. Uh, we're talking about COVID and crowd restrictions. Uh, we know one part of the country and one sport in particular that probably won't make any changes, and that's college football, Why especially that, here Brett? in the South. <laughs> um, but the big news in the college football world, Texas and Oklahoma seemingly joining the SEC, which would turn it into a 16-team conference, the largest conference at Division One FBS level. Uh, and that's going to have large-scale ramifications around uh, the college football world. Uh, we've also got Scott Clemens now here in the studio now, hopped off the ones and two, swapped places with Sebastian. Scott, I mean, like this isn't really shocking news, is it? I mean, it was shocking in the sense that nobody had heard about it until about a few days ago, Texas right? A&M still hasn't heard about it. They've been kept in the dark. Oh, still. they've heard yeah. about it all right. <laughs> yeah, like, it's one of those things where I want to say it was Wednesday when the first story broke. Like, I just looked at it, and it's like, oh, this negotiation, they're trying to get more money. They're not actually going to leave. And now we're sitting here three, four days later, and people are talking about, is this the end of the NCAA as we know it? And so it's crazy how kind of rapid this has shifted and how kind of media coverage of this whole thing has kind of changed. And Yeah. And, and you know, here's the thing. You credit Greg Sankey because he's just doing his job and he's looking out for the best interests of the Southeastern Conference. you got a new commissioner of the Pac-12. you got a new commissioner 
and the ACC, you got a new commissioner in the Big Ten, and Bob Bowlesby is Bob Bowlesby. So, all that being said, he strikes while the iron's hot. He goes to where, I mean, we know there's been discontent with Texas and Oklahoma, specifically Texas, for a very long time. And, you know, I saw a good point on Twitter today that, you know, everybody's ire is immediately on Texas because, you know, Texas always loves to throw its weight around and expects you to bend the knee and yada, 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 all this stuff in the Big 12. Oklahoma's kind of getting a free pass for this. <laughs> Definitely. And if anyone stands to gain, it's, you know, the program that's actually competitive right now, at least in the short term. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of people are looking too close up at this and like, well, what are they doing? They won't be competitive. Yeah, and they're going to swim in money. Like, right. who cares? They're Texas. They'll be competitive eventually. Like, I, I, people want to always take such a short-term approach to college football when this is going to change our sport forever like like this isn't going to change it in two three seasons of oh isn't that cool that auburn's gonna play in norman that year no 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 this is going to ruin programs it's going to ruin jobs it's going to ruin boosters and honestly think about it this way think about how many universities are in debt right now that they're planning on making up because of tv revenue because they're planning on making up because of Seasons being back in play and season ticket sales. This is going to financially change college sports forever if this is what happens. And we certainly at least know one piece of the puzzle. Texas and Oklahoma told us this right. morning in a joint statement they are leaving the Big 12. They say that they're going to stay till the end of the grant of rights, and I don't think anybody believes that for a second. So, what really does bother me about this whole thing is hearing the report that Awful Announcing gave out a couple days ago that for at least the last couple months, ESPN has been somewhat involved with these talks. I I despise the idea of the media picking winners and losers. I get they're just as much a live event business as they are a journalistic business. But that's the stuff that kills me. The greed that has come into college sports. The greed that sunk college sports for a long time, not letting kids have their share of the pot. Not letting a college student be able to profit off his name, image, and likeness, or her name, image, and likeness. You know, it's now come home to roost, and yet some way, somehow, the adults have found a way to make more money and screw a lot of people in the process. We just watched this happen a few years ago with the Big East, and how ESPN had their fingerprints all over that, too. Absolutely, they killed the Big East. So this this is nothing new in terms of the college football landscape and money, you know, driving the entire thing. Uh, and, and the big, uh, uh, and you go, going back to what you said about, you know, Oklahoma, you know, oh, are they going to be competitive? As, as much as college football in the moment doesn't feel cyclical, it is. You know, Alabama's not going to be at the top of the mountain forever. No. Neither will Clemson, neither will Ohio State. Imagine transporting yourself back to the 1990s when I bet people thought, well, Florida State, Nebraska, Notre Dame, what are these guys not going to be at the top of the mountain? And look where they all yeah. are now. And, and to talk about how bad Bama was by the late 90s. Exactly. Of course, were great in the beginning of the decade. But yeah. College football is cyclical. I mean, the, the places that have the built-in advantages, whether it's the money that an Ohio State or an Alabama has, whether it's the recruiting area that the big three in Florida have, mm-hmm. everybody who has that advantage is going to stick around some way, somehow. Except this kind of feels like that puts that in danger. This feels like it upsets the apple cart. And, and I've, and I've got to tell you, I don't think there are many people in the world who want a world, especially here in this state, where Mississippi and Mississippi State are more competitive for a national title just because of their TV deal and their revenue and the facilities and such they can build with that than a Florida State or a Miami. It, 
I think right now everybody wants to be a fly on the wall in the commissioner's offices for three specific conferences. Well, I guess you could throw the Big 12 in there too, but the Big 10, the ACC, and the Pac-12 and kind of looking at what the next move is for them. Maybe I saw some stuff, maybe the Pac-12 and the Big 10 should try to merge or the Big 10 and the ACC should try to merge. I don't know the likelihood of that. I think now it's it's clear that the SEC kind of has a stranglehold of this new, going into this new uh, era of realignment, and it's going to be kind of whoever else can pick up the scraps. I don't know who can get Cincinnati, who can get UCF. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting, though. Like, Scott, what do you think this, this has to do, or what do, you, what do you think the ramifications are going to be the rest, looking at the rest of the college football landscape and the rest of the conferences? Well, this could really be something interesting. Going kind of off what you were saying with mergers and realignment, I think if any merger is going to happen, it's going to be Big Ten and the Pac-12. Though, like we've kind of seen the cooperations before with those two conferences, they uh, about this time last year were the two who joined together to kind of cancel their season, and then of course that ended up backfiring. <laughs> so, but if there's any, I think if there's any kind of merger that's going to happen, it's going to be with those two. And I think if I'm Jim Phillips and I'm the ACC and I'm sitting in Greensboro, North Carolina, I have West Virginia on the phone and I have Notre Dame in the other room and I'm sitting down and I'm saying, let's figure this out because if because if we don't, we're all kind of up the creek without a paddle. Well, and, I, go ahead. But, uh, I'm, I'm good. So okay. you go. You know, the, the ACC's role in this is very, very interesting to me. Because, you know, there are marketable brands. This is about TV dollars. This is about eyeballs. Florida State and Clemson move the needle. I mean, Florida State's games score extremely well in the book, even after three and eight seasons, and even after the disastrous three to four years that this program's gone through specifically. I will I'm, say, I'm, I think the prime generation of, of people that grew up in the, the golden eras of Florida, the golden days of Florida State football, are like the prime television watching audience right now too, and I think that has a role to play in it. And Eighteen as, to forty nine. Yeah, as time passes, maybe that sort starts to change a little bit. But I, I definitely agree. With I, that and, but 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 here's the thing: you you say that. However, you know, when I was in school at Florida State, early twenty tens, from twenty twelve to twenty fourteen. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought I'd see the day where I say that in the, in the stinking V89 studio and I get laughed at. But there we go. Uh, you know, I mean, Florida State had been down for a decade. And, you know, the interest yeah. was still there. The draw yeah. was still there. And when they catch fire in 2013, they're out of nowhere the most polarizing and interesting to talk about team in college football. There are just certain programs that are that. I mean, throughout the 2000s, Notre Dame stunk. Yeah. They stunk. And people love to talk about how much Charlie Weiss stunk. They loved it to death. Charlie Weiss, Notre Dame, I'm dating myself again. Look at me. But, but you know, you, you keep going. There are just certain names and certain draws, and I've completely gone away from my point, which is what is ESPN going to do about the ACC? Because yeah. the thing is ESPN has a vested financial interest in the Atlantic Coast Conference by being the first, second, and third tier rights holder by having that grant of rights agreement with the league until the mid-2030s, they can't afford for something they've pumped that much money in to fold and fail. So I'm interested to see, are there talks behind the scenes with Notre Dame? Obviously, Jim Phillips even said it last week at ACC kickoff. The league is pretty clear. They'd love for Notre Dame to be a full-time football yeah. member. Now, you can argue, should they have twisted Notre Dame's arm more last season? That's up for debate. But overall, it's that's always been the desire of the league, whether Notre Dame wants that or not, whether they read the tea leaves or not. But something tells me, 
and I have no inside knowledge of this. I don't have a source pumping anything into me on this. But something tells me something is brewing with the Atlantic Coast Conference. Something tells me Jim Phillips is a much different dude than John Swafford. I think you just read the press clippings and yeah, you get that. Definitely. From everybody who's around him, everybody says how smart he is, how aggressive he is, and how football forward he is. I'm interested to see what the next two, three months hold, not just for the SEC, but for the ACC. Because uh, one more thing and I'll shut up. Um, take a look at David Hale and Andrea Adelson of ESPN.com. They did a phenomenal report a couple months ago where they got a couple administrators from the ACC off the record uh, from ACC institutions. And one of the things a lot of them said, you know, we could really close our revenue gap if we just got to Oklahoma and Texas. Those two specific schools, and you know, a couple months before all this springs out of nowhere, how long have these talks of realignment been going on in smoky, behind-closed-door rooms that none of us are privy to? That's what I want to know, and I want to know what the ACC's role specifically is in all of it. Because obviously, if you're a Florida State fan, if you're a Clemson fan, a Miami fan, Virginia Tech fan, and you know you need that conference money to survive and stay competitive in college football, this is a scary time for you right now. If you're Notre Dame, though, we're, we're headed towards a 12-team playoff, seemingly. Do you need to – I know everyone ever, – there's always this argument made. Like, every offseason, really, oh, Notre Dame, eventually, they're going to need to join a conference. They're going to need to do this. They're going to need to do that. They should go Big Ten. They should go ACC. Does Notre Dame need to join a conference with – say the say there's going to be some more realignment. Say, yes, West Virginia ends up in the ACC. Maybe Cincinnati goes to the Big Ten. Maybe these conferences try to bolster and, and try to compete with the SEC. Does Notre Dame need to be one of those teams that joins this conference? Because I kind of see a way where they can still you know, put together some solid schedules and keep doing what they're doing, keep that NBC TV money, and, and keep rocking the way they have been really for their entire existence. I mean, I would agree with you uh, up until about four days ago when all of this kind of happened. And we're going to kind of, I think, talk about schools more a little bit because like Notre Dame is a little more of an interesting situation. They're separate. They're their own yeah. case study. I think up until four days ago, yeah, they were com- they were they still are a completely self sustaining program, can kinda manage to do things on their own and op still operate at a high level. But I think what everyone's kinda worried about now is this now sixteen team SEC being so far above everyone else that it's impossible for everyone to compete. And so I think there is a little more incentive now for Notre Dame to consider uh, joining the ACC full-time. Consider maybe reaching out to the Big Ten. Kind of consider ending this kind of tradition of being this independent football program because the gap as we see it today is only getting bigger. And and, and I think, you know, what's what's really going to be fascinating here as we move forward is... How big of a revenue disparity is that TV contract going to be with Texas and Oklahoma joining the SEC, if that is, in fact, what happens? Because, of course, uh, everybody in the know knows 2024 is when every just about every grant of rights contract comes up except the ACCs, which is through the 2030s. You need something very, very interesting to bring ESPN back to the table on that yeah. matter. That being said... Texas and Oklahoma joined the league. Is Sankey going to go straight to ESPN and Disney and say, hey, I know you've signed the most expensive contract ever to be the first-tier rights holders for us, 
but we're going to need more money because we have Texas and Oklahoma now, and that's just not going to do for us. If that happens, if the tea leaves change through that, and don't get me wrong, Notre Dame NBC deal is super lucrative. <laughs> but if you're the ACC, your best case scenario on top of Notre Dame joining just because of the fan base and the eyeballs they bring, because that contract with ESPN is so ironclad for so long, Notre Dame gives you leverage more than anything. Not just the brand name, not just the fan base, not just, you know, the the deep pockets. It lets you go to Disney. It lets you go straight to Mickey Mouse and say, hey, listen, we got Notre Dame now, plus Cincinnati or West Virginia or... UCF or, even, or, maybe. Or whoever it is that you, whoever it is you want to add to the league, Oklahoma State, what, what, whatever. It's, say you add those two, maybe even poach one or two more, making an A-team conference. I don't know. Because I don't think any of us really know how this, no. where, where the stopping point is. But that's about the only thing that lets you go into Jimmy Pataro's office, if you're Jim Phillips, and say, yeah, we're renegotiating this, we're renegotiating this right now, because this is a bad deal for us. Yeah, I think something, and we you know, we can go on and on about Notre Dame and how their, their deal is going to work and where they kind of fit in all of this. What about these other Big 12 schools? Because, you know, you can... You know, you can open space for Texas and Oklahoma, right? What is, like, if you're sitting in Manhattan, Kansas right now, and, like, you're Kansas State, what are you doing, right? If you're Kansas State, Baylor, TCU, what are you doing? Like, Kansas could probably get a pretty easy deal off just off of basketball alone, right? Oklahoma State's probably going to move somewhere. They're they're probably the third best pro program in that conference as it stands now west yeah. virginia has a pretty good brand brand as well with their audience like coal miners if they can manage to turn on their tvs <laughs> oh but if you if i'm sitting there being baylor tech texas tech kansas state you're going to have a harder time negotiating these deals and it's not it's not going to be as these easy kind of shady backroom conversations as it was with tech Texas and Oklahoma. And and the thing is, how restrictive are all these conferences going to be? There's a report out there today that the Big Ten only wants people and schools that are a part of the Association of American Universities. And you, you scroll through the Big 12. I've got the list up here right now. Uh, just about everybody who was in the Big Ten or in the Big 12 left. Uh, Nebraska at one time was a member of the AAU. They're not anymore. Uh, Colorado Boulder, part of the Pac-12 now. Just about everybody in the Big Ten is. Uh, UT Austin is among them, but it doesn't look like they're exactly (laughs) thrilled to be packing their bags and headed to the Big Ten anytime soon. So, yeah. So, if the Big Ten's off the table, you kind of need the Pac-12 and the ACC to deliver if you're... Like, the ones I'm not worried for. Like, like, let's, let's go through this. Who are you not worried for in the Big 12? Who's finding a home? Oklahoma State. Probably Baylor and TCU, I'd imagine. I mean, just because the Dallas market alone. I, is I don't know. Right. I would, I would hold my breath on Baylor, pers- personally. Like they are not generally huge audience. Yes, this recent basketball championship is going to help them a lot, but I'm, I'd still hold my breath on Baylor. I, I, I and, and I, I'm with you that they're a little fringier. I mean, it's, it's, it's a little fringier than say like a K State, which is you know up the creek without a paddle. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, but I, I think the idea that it's a private school and it has all that money and it has all those facilities, I, I, I tend to think they'll find a way. Uh, but, yeah, outside of those three, I mean, Kansas, it's a great basketball tradition, 
But is it bringing you anything eyeball-wise with the biggest moneymaker in football? Of course not. K-State, same. I mean, who else? I think Iowa State maybe has a case. If that AAU to the Big Ten rumors nonsense, they make perfect sense in the Big Ten. Yeah. So, but other than that, you know, you get a little worried if you're if you're one of these squads. Texas Tech, I mean, this is Texas Tech. This is a team that's turned into a basketball power. It is traditionally a great second or third fiddle, depending on where A&M is in football, in the state of Texas. And if you're in Lubbock, you're scared to death right now. <laughs> Like, I, I, I hate this. I, I hate this so stinking much. There's no reason to upset the apple cord like this except greed. Yeah. And it's it's just so killer that it's killing a college game like this. Uh, speaking of greed, something that I want to talk, kind of bring up a little bit is the kind of like apocalypse scenario, right? Because Greg Sankey, who is commissioner of the SEC, has not exactly been silent on what he thinks of Mark Emmert, on what he thinks of the NCAA and their board of governors and their action. Is this maybe less about mo- less about kind of money and more of a power move of kind of where we're potentially bordering on like a super league conversation, college football, because the NCAA is not going to do anything about it. The NCAA has kind of proven their ineptitude with, uh, we can talk about the Supreme court case. We can talk about, uh, COVID regulations. We can talk about, we can do an uh, hour special. Yes, exactly. We can talk about all these things that the NCAA has not acted on for whatever reason. And so now are we seeing a bunch of conference commissioners who are fed up with the system and being like, hey, let's just go do this on our own. And so I am curious, Ryan and Brett, kind of what on your thoughts of of maybe if this is less about money and more about potentially just a big power grab and potentially breaking away from the NCAA and changing the whole landscape of college athletics. I would say yes to that, but I also think that makes it more about money. And I think it'll always go back to the money in, in, in the big the big players. And I think we could do an hour special on that. And I th- maybe we should. Maybe we should do a podcast one of these days. Graveyard but shift. Let, Love let, it. Let's bring it home to, to finish this show. Ryan, you are uh, out at ACC kickoff. And I'm just going to cut right to the chase. I know Coach Norvell didn't really do much to tip his hand. Mackenzie Milton, Jordan Travis, who you got starting week one? Before we run on that, I did want okay. to touch on one more thing. I think if you're Greg Sankey, you're not looking to be commissioner of the SEC. You're looking to be commissioner of major college football. Yeah. I, I think the idea yeah. here isn't to make the SEC more powerful. I think the idea is to make the SEC the organization. I, I, I think the idea here is to maybe almost make it like a football league, like a professional football league where you have here's the – East, here's the West, here's the American and the National Football Conferences, here's mm-hmm. your four-team divisions, here's the pods you play in. I could very well Let's see that scenario playoffs. where there's about yeah, there's about 48 teams in major college football because on top of all that, that makes all these rights deals that we're talking about a moot point because yeah. it's bargained collectively among mm-hmm. ESPN and CBS and Fox and NBC, and the list goes on and on and on. That is where I think... The masterminds want this to go. Yeah. That, that more than anything. All right, back to your question. <laughs> uh, Milton or Travis? Uh, yes, I think the answer is yes. Uh, I think Milton will be the guy who takes the first snap for you against Notre Dame. I think more often than not, he will be the dude. But when you take a look at Mike Norvell's history at Memphis, he's more than happy to show some wildcat wrinkles. 
he's more than happy to show those sets. And listen, we, we saw it through the spring game. We've seen it just throughout his career. Uh, Mackenzie Milton's the best passer on this team. There's no doubt about it. Florida State's had so much trouble moving the ball through the air for these last three years that, you know, seeing him break out in the spring game, albeit after a meh spring, was a breath of fresh air, I think, if you're a Garnet and Gold fan. Like, just period. But Travis is going to see his time. He's going to see some snaps simply because, uh, you know, you saw it far too often last year and even in Kendall Bryles' offense after Willie Taggart was filed, fired. He's too dynamic. He's got too much game-breaking potential for you to keep him off the field stirring Powerade. And and he is, yeah, maybe the best playmaker on this Florida State roster currently. And we saw Mike Norvell say uh, during one of his media scrums uh, that last year they started four quarterbacks in nine games, and he said... That is not a good recipe for success. Nope. So I think Milton and Travis, like you said, are going to be used, but I do think having a well, quote-unquote steady hand with Mackenzie Milton yeah. under center and Jordan Travis mixed in is going to be really important it's, for this it's offense. It's not always the idea of it's not always the idea of how many quarterbacks do you have, it's how many roles do you have defined. Yeah. I think is really what ends up because I mean, between the four quarterbacks last year, everybody's role was supposed to be win us football games and be the guy under center, manage the offense. It wasn't a, hey, I want you on the field for these wrinkles. I want you to be our primary guy. Having defined roles is going to mean everything to this Florida State team, especially to a coach like Mike Norvell that seems to value structure so much. Any other highlights out of the ACC kickoff that you noticed when you were there? Um, You know, I think it's good to hear Jim Phillips talk about being aggressive, wanting to get the ACC network in more homes. Uh, obviously, we didn't know anything about the conference stuff. That was still a few hours away. That news, that bombshell breaking when he took the stage. But, boy, if he'd have been there about 24 hours later, I would have loved to have seen what that press conference was like. But, yeah, overall, there's quite confidence with Florida State's players. Mike Norvell, like you said, very hush-hush, wouldn't tip his hand. But those guys really, really seem to be excited to go out there and maybe prove a couple people wrong. And also... Uh, first time being up close to him, Jermaine Johnson's a freak. That kid's yeah. a Goliath. He's huge. Yeah, gonna be gonna be one of the star players on that on that defense this year. And you know, as we end tonight's show, we'd be remiss without uh, mentioning uh, legendary coach Bobby Bowden, uh, who was diagnosed with a terminal illness. But he says in an interview that he is at peace. And although none of us were here during his coaching days. Uh, I think uh, we all feel the impact that he's had on Absolutely. this city, this community, this university, and, and, and what he means to Florida State. So uh, from from everyone at, at V89, our thoughts and prayers are with Coach Bowden and his family. And uh, that's going to do it for, for this week's uh, show. Thank you to Sebastian Indoriano, Scott Clemens, and our special guest, Ryan Kelly, tonight. Filling in for Luke Hazen, I'm Brett Rutherford. This was Tomahawk Talk live on WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.